0: Andy's children's times make me think that maybe I should get some props and help, uh, help with my time to share with you all. Our second reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter twelve, beginning with verse nine. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. I came across a joke this week that struck a chord, probably because these days the conversation could have easily happened in the Curtis home. A young boy has just gotten his driving permit. He's asked his dad, who's a minister, If they could discuss using the car, his dad sits him down in the living room and and says to him, I'll make you a deal. You bring your grades up, you study your Bible a little and you get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. (laughs) After about a month, the boy comes back and again asks his dad if they can discuss using the car. They again sit down in the living room and his father says, son, I've been really proud of you. You've brought up your grades, you've studied your Bible consistently, but you didn't get your hair cut. The young man is ready, and he replies, you know, Dad, I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, Moses and Jesus both had long hair, to which the father replied, yes, and they walked everywhere they went. We've heard a lot of jokes about Moses because there are plenty, and we've heard a lot of stories about Moses, again, because there are plenty. Moses is perhaps the most well-known figure found in the pages of the Old Testament. It's Moses who says to Pharaoh, let my people go. It's Moses who speaks to God face to face. It's Moses who delivers the Ten Commandments, and Moses who parts the Red Sea, and Moses, who brings water out of the rock, and Moses, who summons up manna out in the wilderness. Moses is extraordinary. But as this morning's passage from Exodus begins, we find Moses as anything but extraordinary. He's just another shepherd on just another day, just a tiny speck in the vast emptiness of the desert. An ordinary shepherd with an ordinary flock On an ordinary day, as the writer of Exodus tells us, Moses is at Mount Horeb, which in Hebrew means wasteland. And if you have to, it makes you wonder if that describes the terrain of the land around him or the state of Moses' soul. He's here in this wasteland, truthfully, because he's a fugitive on the run from justice. Back in Egypt, Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave and in a fit of rage killed the Egyptian and hid the body. Pharaoh finds out and before long, Moses had a price on his head and was running for his life. And now Moses finds himself in this wasteland working for his father-in-law, wandering around the desert with a bunch of stupid sheep foraging for grass and wondering what happened to his life. Not too long ago, he was somebody special. The baby in the bulrushes, the adopted child of the royal palace, the golden boy. Now he's just another down-on-his-luck laborer taking odd jobs and handouts from his in-laws just to make ends meet. Moses the ordinary, Moses the middling, Moses the mediocre. Moses, who is on his way up the mountain with this group of sheep, when God all of a sudden gets his attention. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of a bush, Exodus says. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. The burning bush is meant to draw attention and it works. I must turn aside and look at this great sight, Moses says. And as soon as he does, God gives him his marching orders. You will bring my people out of Egypt. But of course, Moses protests. Who am I to stand before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead these people? You can almost hear him saying, I'm not that good. I'm not that gifted. I'm just ordinary. But apparently being gifted and talented is not the issue. God's presence is. I will be with you in all of this, God says. I will be with you, and you shall serve me upon this mountain. As the rest of Moses' life unfolds, we'll discover that mountains play a prominent part in Moses' story. He is commissioned on Mount Horeb. He receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and just before he dies... He gets a glimpse of the promised land from atop Mount Nebo. And we all love mountaintop experiences, don't we? Especially here in East Tennessee. I know many of you like to hike. Hike to Look Rock. Hike Tremont. Hike to Clingman's Dome. It's it's nice to get a break from the ordinary and boring monotony of our sometimes middling lives. It's not surprising to us then that early Christian monastics thought there was a connection between the life of faith and mountains. Desert spirituality teaches that the spiritual life moves in three stages. First, like Moses, we enter the desert or the wilderness where we're stripped of all pretense. Next, we climb the mountain where, on the journey, we find illumination. Finally, We reach the top where we experience the cloud or the presence of God's glory. I don't know what pushes you into the wilderness because for each one of us, it's very different. But whatever it is, as I've said before from this pulpit, I would bet money that it's almost never something of your own choosing. You lose a job or a parent dies. Conflict erupts in church or of the family or the office, and you feel like your insides are being wrenched out. A child fails or gets drunk, or you fail or get drunk. A spouse leaves. A friend gets hospitalized. The first choice school says no. The coach says, You're just not good enough. You know what wilderness looks like in your own life, but whatever it is, I'm pretty sure it's not anything you chose or anything you went looking for. The desert monastic said that as difficult as those experiences are, they each have a purpose. They send us into the wilderness, which is the first step towards encountering God. But the second step, that's the one I want to focus on today. Going up the mountain. Going up the mountain in search of illumination, looking for God seeking the mountaintop, but not yet quite there. I think this is where most Christians spend most of their spiritual lives. We know what the wilderness is like, and we hope and pray for the mountaintop. But the truth is that for most of us, most of the time, we're almost always halfway up, living out our ordinary days in our ordinary lives. You might say we're mediocre Christians. Mediocre because in French, mediocre means halfway up a stony mountain. It comes from Latin, medius and acris, halfway up a stony mountain. Mediocre, not down in the pit of despair, not up in the cloud of spiritual ecstasy, but halfway up the mountain. This is the place of discipleship. This is where life happens. In the classrooms, in the hospital rooms, in the living rooms of the ordinary landscapes. Mediocre Christians are real Christians in real places, in real life. I'm a mediocre Christian and I'm halfway up the mountain of God. And in a world where Climate-fueled catastrophic fires and hurricanes seem to fill our newsfeeds daily with story after story of hate-filled violence and death, with all the social and political and racial unrest where every new day feels a little worse than the one before. It would be easier, wouldn't it, if life with God meant living on the mountaintop, removed from all the problems and all the illness, and all the violence, and all the death, just me and Jesus having a good time. Being a Christian would be a lot easier if it only involved a solitary relationship with God, if it didn't mean getting our hands dirty, if we didn't have to get tangled up with the world and its hurts and its needs and its evil, if we didn't have to bother with other people and their imperfections. But you know, and I do too, that that's not how it works. Being connected to God means being connected to each other. It isn't just enough to be right if we don't do right. I read a quote this week from Jimmy Carter who wrote in his spiritual biography autobiography several years ago, faith is not only a noun, but it's also a verb. And in the 12th chapter of Romans, Paul lays out exactly what that means. Love one another. Hate evil. Hold fast to good. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and don't pay back evil. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. President Carter is right. Faith is not just a noun, it's a verb. It's not just what you believe, it's how you believe. It's not just who you are, but it's what you do. And the place to learn that is not up alone with God in the clouds. You learn that halfway up the mountain, in the ordinary days of your ordinary lives, in the same old ordinary places. Most of you know that Fridays are my day off and most Fridays I like to piddle around the house and get some chores done that tend to ne- that tend to get neglected during the busy week. And one of those Friday chores for me is laundry. I've learned it's easy to start a load and then go do something else for a little while before throwing the load in the dryer and finding something else to do, but when it's time to fold the laundry, I like to find something to put on the TV that's mindless and ordinary and mediocre. Well, last Friday, as I was searching for that perfect show, I came across one on Amazon Prime that Daniel Asher and I started watching a few years ago during lockdown. But we only got through about two and a half episodes. It's called the world's toughest race. It's 66 teams from all over the world competing in a 500 plus mile race through rivers and oceans and jungles and valleys and up mountains. In the episode I watched last Friday while folding laundry, one of the competitors said something that stuck with me, especially as I was thinking about this sermon this week. The racer said that there's a hard truth about climbing mountains. Once you get up there, once you're at the top, you must come back down. You don't have a choice. We're not meant to live among the clouds. There's not enough oxygen. We can't stay there forever. It's a reminder that the mountaintop is never, ever the final destination. Moses went up Mount Horeb and met God, but then he had to go back down to meet Pharaoh. He went up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, But then he had to go back down to face the golden calf. We can't stay at the top of the mountain forever. So when you have one of those mountaintop experiences, when you go up the mountain and you're covered in the cloud of God's grace, know that it's a gift, a great gift. But it's only one step on the journey. It's never the destination. It's never the end of the story. If this is the landscape of faith, then sign me up to be a mediocre Christian, learning to practice real faith in real places, in real life, halfway up a stony mountain, halfway up the mountain of God. Amen.
1: Please join me as we gather for the prayers of the people. God of fire, you are a force. Beyond human understanding, with a power to sear through the veins of creation with passion and vigor, or to extinguish life in consuming flame. Your presence is dangerous, for there is no predicting where you might burn. And yet, it is also comforting, for the light and warmth offer an invitation to draw closer. Redeeming God, out of the flames of your creation, your voice calls, marking us as your own. Yet there are times we choose to ignore your voice and listen instead to our own needs and desires and those that challenge our faith from within the world. Oh God, forgive us for those times when we have ignored the needs of others, when we have failed to place our feet upon your path when we allow the earthly voice to distract us from your call loving Lord in your forgiveness you offer again your invitation to know your love to be loved and to respond to your call and hearing your voice as Moses heard it may we find our place within your creation may we heed your call and answer you saying here I am O Lord use me Gracious God, allow us to be your beacons of light and love in this broken world, clothed in all the armor of truth and righteousness, salvation, and goodness. When we encounter those who are suffering, suffering, let us be bearers of your mercy and justice. When we meet those who mean us harm, instead let us offer gestures of love and kindness. When we experience discord and conflict, Let us respond in love. When we see inequality, give us the courage to seek your justice, where we see the broken and forgotten. Embolden us to step forward with courageous love. Open our hearts, open our hands, open our minds to embrace all your children, even those we call enemy, those we fear, and those we call other. O God, for those who suffer, pain in body, mind, or soul. Wrap them in your tender healing power and comfort them. Remind them that you dwell with them in that pain and that they are not alone. We pray for those whose journeys in life have come to an end and now rest with you in death, remembering Charlie Smith. Surround Susan and Preston and Aaron and their family in love, reminding them that you are God of both life and death. Oh God, hear now our individual prayers in silence, naming our joys and our laments. And hear us now as we pray that prayer your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven,